Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles and open to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, while you're turning there, just remind you, next week, Sunday, October the 4th of 2020, uh, it will still be 2020, nothing I can do about that, okay? We will celebrate our 16th anniversary as a church. On the actual day, we launched on October the 4th, 2004. And so next week, we're going to celebrate our 16th anniversary. It's been the best 30 years of our life. It's been good. It's been rich. I want to share with you next week a testimony of some of the things that God has been doing in the life of our church, specifically in the last year and, yea, even the last six months or so in this season of 2020 that we shall all be marked by. God has done some powerful work, and I want you to hear about one story specifically that we're going to share with you. So I hope you'll be with us next week. Today we're continuing in our series, Citizen Christian, and we're looking at the second part of what I started last week, Christians as Citizens. We're seeking to build a theology of faithful citizenship as Christians, basically. And we started last week with the question, should Christians really be engaged in politics? And I have leaned upon those who are much smarter than I am, who have spoken much more astutely than I could. And so I continue to lean and beckon upon them in this series. But I told you last week, Carl Henry, a great father of our faith in the modern day of the 20th century, stated this, that a Christianity without a passion to turn the world upside down is not reflective of an apostolic Christianity. In other words, in the first century, the apostles had one aim, and that was to turn everything upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we stand in that tradition today because the conviction that we hold that Jesus is Lord should fuel our passion, our zeal, and our labors to cultivate every realm for His good name and God's glory in the world. And so Christians as citizens, we reflect and we should reflect the wholeness of life, of freedom, and of the advancement of oneself in the world for good because why? That's what God intended. That's what God intended, and that's what we want to pursue. And so as we build this theology of citizenship, we're doing so by considering what it looks like to apply the gospel to every public sphere and realm of life. And I want us to see that Christians are called to live as good citizens, called by God to live as good citizens by prioritizing our identity in Jesus and bearing a faithful witness to His kingdom in the world. Now, last week I began by introducing the first of four foundational principles in order to live as we are called as good citizens and build this theology of Christ honoring citizenship. I want to briefly review that first principle just as a reminder to you and to share it with you if you weren't with us. Principle number one simply says Christian citizenship begins with the priority of our identity in Jesus Christ. And as we look at our passage today, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, you go, well, where do you draw that from those verses? I say, well, actually, I don't draw it from that verse or from those verses. 
But anytime you aim to understand a set of verses and the content of that passage, you must understand the context within which it was written. And the context of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 7 is introduced by chapters 1 in the first part of chapter 2. And what Peter tells us is that we have a hope in Jesus Christ that never perishes, spoils, or fades. And that because of that hope, everything has changed. Our whole life has changed. And we're here as a royal priesthood, a a chosen nation, a holy nation to God, as a people for God's own purposes. And this is the perspective with which we should approach our earthly citizenship because of our heavenly citizenship. And the fact that Jesus changes everything about our lives means this, that we exist. The whole of our existence is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us. And so for the Christian, a knowledge of self, our identity, an understanding of the world or what is called a worldview, and our understanding of our purpose, why we exist, is all defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most controversial statements I believe I'll make throughout this whole series is this. That the local church is the most important political community in our nation. And the whole time I'm trying to make an argument for this. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about bringing politics into the church. I'm talking about taking the church into politics. Make sure you get the direction right. A lot of confusion in our day on that. But the Christian church as a political voice serves for a greater glory because the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ is far greater than any matter of the state on the earth. And so we talked about in this first principle last week that Christians serve as a prophetic voice to God's good for the public conscience. That that we are a prophetic voice for God's good to the public conscience in the world. And we talked about how it is we frame that prophetic voice by three testimonies, all derived from Genesis, that, that God's creational narrative serves as the context for the whole of the world. God's creational command is the highest good and establishes each person's responsibility before God. And God's creational mandate is that we cultivate good in the world. And we'll revisit that, but I think you'll hear how it is that we apply these three testimonies as we move forward to fulfill laboring for good in the world. And you see, when Christians choose to be silent in their testimony, that silence creates a vacuum of witness that leaves the conscience of the general public open to be shaped by lies, by false narratives, and by deceptive ideologies. That's why it's imperative that we proclaim a faithful witness by these three testimonies in applying the gospel. And so once we've established that our identity is prioritized, now we can begin to move into the the understanding of how is it that we rightly relate to government as God's servant in the world. What Paul and Peter both teach us that government is. That leads us to the second principle, which is this. Christians as citizens model obedience to earthly authority in submission to Jesus. We model obedience to earthly authorities in submission to Jesus. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Let's pause there for a moment. In the midst of a world and a culture of severe persecution, Peter writes these words. Be subject. Submit yourself is what he's telling us. It's hard for us to imagine just how bad it was in Peter's day. But suffice it to say that people were having their lives taken immediately from them for nothing more than simply saying, yes, I'm a Christian. That's a death sentence. And it was a death sentence of the most excruciating pain and horrific reality of the way it would be carried out. But the command begins our understanding of citizenship because Peter says this, the command is is addressing the true issue that we operate from as Christians and it is the issue of authority. That all authority of government is established by God. It's his institution. It's his designation. And when we recognize the issue of authority as God has placed it, what we are saying is that we trust that God is the origin and source of all authority and that Jesus is Lord of all authority. When we recognize government leaders, we recognize God's purpose in designating them. And so Christians submit to government leaders because we recognize submission is to God's authority and Jesus' lordship. Let me use two questions to explain and apply what I'm talking about. The first question is this, what is the Christian's relationship to the government? What is the Christian's relationship to the government? Now, we could apply this in different ways in different nations because every nation has their own nuances and forms of government. My aim for us as American citizens is to apply it within our government and form of uh, government. America is a constitutional republic. That means simply that some decisions are made by the vote of the populace. Other decisions are made by those who have been elected by the vote of the populace. We champion the representation of every person in America by an infamous phrase from Abraham Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address when he said this, that America is a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Brilliant man, would you not agree? It is actually thought that Abraham Lincoln likely stole that quote. It wasn't original to him. Imagine that, a politician stealing a quote to use for his own benefit, which I would argue he used it for the right benefit, and I love the quote. But he stole that quote from a man by the name of John Wycliffe. Ever heard the name Wycliffe? Maybe you're familiar with the Wycliffe Bible translators of today. One of the most prolific spreaders of the gospel by the translation of the Bible into any known tongue that does not have its, a Bible in its native tongue. They do a phenomenal work and they hold the name of the one who was their namesake, John Wycliffe, who incidentally lost his life because of his work. And in the prologue to his translation of the Bible, he wrote these words, the Bible is for the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. (laughs) Smells familiar, doesn't it? In a very unique way, American people themselves hold some government-ordained authority because of our designated participation in the process. 
our participation in the process of a constitutional republic bestows upon us some measure and means of the very authority that God has designated for governments because of what it means for us to participate. The American citizen's participant role includes two aspects, our rights and our responsibilities. They always go together. You see, rights are what citizens hold in a measure of a certain authority that's been granted to us. We talked about this last week and the recognition of even our founding uh, documents as America in the inalienable rights that we believe are bestowed upon people, not by the government, but by God. And we talked about the role of government in that. But I'm talking about the role of citizens as participants in the government right now. And it is, hear me, the exercise of our rights that establish our role of participation in our form of government and actually protects our freedom. What rights bestow to us, responsibility places their safeguard upon us. You understand that? In other words, we are responsible for the rights that have been bestowed upon us. And I'll tell you how I believe that's biblical in just a moment. But do you know what the right that no one cares to defend is? The one that rarely gets exercised. Think about it. Muscles atrophy when? When they never get used. The same is true for rights. If you don't exercise them, nobody's interested in defending them. Rights are established by our responsibility as citizens, which is founded in God's creational command, which comes first. So when God says to us, he says to Adam and Eve and ultimately to people, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it exercise dominion. The command of God at creation is established for the highest of his creation, people. And inherent within the command that God has given us is our responsibility to do what? To obey. He is our creator. It is our responsibility to obey him. Now, it is not right, nor would God do it, to give us a responsibility without also bestowing upon us the ability the power, the, as we call them, inalienable rights to be able to fulfill the command that he's given to us. That's how God works. And this is what establishes our rights and our responsibilities. God's creational command determines man's responsibility in which is established our inalienable rights to operate and to fulfill the good upon this earth that God created every human being to fulfill. Citizens' rights are established by our responsibility and they must be exercised and guarded in order to be kept and maintained. As one of the founding fathers infamously stated as well, a constitutional republic is best if it can be maintained. Even the founding fathers recognized that what they aimed at had a sense of theoretical utopia inherent within it. It might be too good to be true, but it had to be held because we believe this is the way government was designed to operate. You see, the greatest threat is that the good of this world gets redefined or redetermined, if you will, by individualism. 
Individualism is what secular humanism and atheism purports. And it is inherent to say this, that the rights of a person are inherent to that person and not bestowed upon them by the Creator. Therefore, if a right is inherent within the individual, the responsibility of that individual only exists for that individual and not for others. And this is the ideology that secular humanism, yea, even atheism purports. In the denial of God, if he is not creator, then where do we get our rights from? Well, they're inherent with ourself. And therefore, I don't owe you anything. You don't owe me anything. I'm only responsible for me. The problem is existence doesn't operate that way. Christians, rather, live subject to earthly authorities, not in submission to self or for the good of self, but ultimately in submission to Jesus. When, for the good of society, we exercise our rights for good and we bear our responsibility to defend them. And listen, we're not just doing this for ourselves, friends. We stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. And we are building shoulders upon those which will come after us will stand as well as citizens and specifically as Christian citizens. Let me give one example from the scriptures of how the biblical exercise of our rights is used not only to establish our responsibility, but in the exercise of them as good in the world for other people. Acts chapter 25, verse 11. Paul has been arrested yet once again for simply the preaching of the gospel. He didn't steal anything. He hasn't lied to anyone. He hasn't committed some other kind of moral offense that would be offensive to the law. Rather, he's just preached the gospel, and they arrested him. In his arrest, he was beaten profusely more than once, and in this beating, he was thrown in prison. Here's the problem. The rulers that did it didn't know he was a Roman citizen. And so, on the next day, when all the evidence was collected, it's always best to perform the execution of the sentence before the evidence is considered, right? Don't laugh. That's exactly what's purported in our world today. Go ahead and fulfill the execution of the sentence, and then we'll weed through the evidence at a later time. When they found the evidence to be true, that in fact Paul had not committed any offense against the Roman law, they sought to release him from prison. That's a good thing, right? Get out of jail for free. We'd all like a card like that. The problem is this. When they told Paul to go and to do no more, don't stir up any more problems, Paul said, you can't treat me this way. And he said, why? Because I'm a Roman citizen. And I'm going to tell you, in that instance, fear was struck into the hearts of those, of those rulers who had carried out the punishment and who had also sentenced him to that punishment. Why? Because the greatest offense in Roman law was what was carried out against a Roman citizen. It was a very uh, uh, denouncement of the mantra of all of Rome, of Pax Romana. In other words, those leaders feared for their life because they could die instantaneously for unjustly carrying out a sentence upon a Roman citizen. And they just realized this man is a Roman citizen that we've already beat. And Paul said, I want to talk to Caesar. I want to talk to the big dude. 
I want to talk to the very top because that was the right of Roman citizenship. And they said, now, Paul, let's, let's not get out of hand here. We'll let you go. We'll be quiet about it if you'll be quiet about it. And Paul said, no way. I'm telling you, the one right nobody cares to defend is the one that never gets exercised. Nobody was interested in holding the right of Paul for Paul if Paul would not have been interested in exercising the right to appeal to Caesar. And Paul had two objects in mind in appealing to Caesar. Number one, to exercise his right as a citizen, which it was his. And number two, it's a great way to preach the gospel to the man at the highest seat of authority in the land. I'm going to get a direct appeal to Caesar. And you knew what Paul was going to do. Yeah, let's look over all of that. I got something else I want to say to you. He exercised his right for the higher good to preach the gospel to Caesar. There's a second question I want us to consider in this though. Not only what is the Christian's relationship to government, but secondly, is there a time when it is right to not submit to earthly authority? Now I have your attention. Yes, remember, we're in the United States of America. Our very nation was founded on the logical explanation of it is time for us to rebel against civic authority. And that has been a defining ethos of our nation. In my study in this, I came across an old doctrine we don't hear much about. But it was an attempt by early Christians hundreds of years ago to build a biblical understanding of what it means for Christians to exercise civic rebellion. Civic rebellion. What justifies it? It's called the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. And basically the word magistrates is an old word that represents those who are in authority. But listen to the explanation of this. When the superior or the higher civil authority makes unjust and immoral laws or decrees, the lesser or lower ranking civil authority has both a right and a duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. If necessary, the lesser authorities even have the right and obligation to actively resist the superior authority. It's not just a right, friends. It's an obligation. It's a duty. If you have a responsibility, you have an obligation. I'll give you another biblical example of this. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter and the apostles stand before the Sanhedrin and the rulers of that day. And they said, shut up and don't speak any more of this man named Jesus. And Peter and the apostles looked at each other and said, you do whatever you want to do. You do whatever you have to do. And what were they talking about? They're talking about killing them. Because again, that's what they were being accused of. But he said, but as for us, we must obey God rather than man. Right there is our foundational phrase for Christians as citizens as we approach everything. When civil authorities mandate disobedience to God, the right, the responsibility, yea, even the duty of Christians to obey God rather than man should be our defining conviction. Francis Schaeffer wrestles with this very idea. And here's what he writes. 
But what is to be done when the state does that which violates its legitimate function? Why were Christians in the Roman Empire thrown to the lions? From a Christian's viewpoint, it was for a religious reason. From the viewpoint of the Roman state, they were in civil disobedience. That is, they were civic rebels. The bottom line is at a certain point, there is not only the right, but the duty to disobey the state. And he goes on to talk about a historical reference of Samuel Rutherford, a founding father, who states that because the state is instituted by God, acts of the state which contradicted God's law were illegitimate and acts of tyranny. Tyranny was defined as ruling without the sanction of God. And so Schaefer concludes, it follows from Rutherford's thesis that citizens have a moral obligation to resist unjust and tyrannical government. While we must always be subject to the office of the magistrate, we are not to be subject to the man in that office who commands that which is contrary to the Bible. America, we have a problem. Obeying earthly authorities includes reminding them where their authority originates from by operating as citizens who exercise our rights and bear our responsibility for the good of all society. This is our argument, friends. And let me tell you, the best way to remember and empower obedience to government authority is simply this way. As Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, pray regularly for them. Because when we pray for those who are in charge over us in government, we are reminded. We are reminded. Not only them, we are. That it is God who is working in this world. And we need to be reminded of that. Christian, the first act of love and your first labor and mission is to pray for leaders so God's redemptive mission will go forward. That's principle number two. Principle number three is this. Christians as citizens cultivate good by action to silence accusation against us. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, that would go over really well. Listen, you're a fool. That's an ignorant act. I'm going to silence you, right? How do we do that? Well, Peter frames why it is that we live subject to earthly authorities by showing it is God's will. And here is his will, the way we live under earthly authority. In other words, to do and to create good for society as a whole becomes a testimony from us to silence ignorant and foolish accusations that arise against us. And so the will of God for us, friends, is that our good deeds serve to witness of our true intentions and motivations in laboring for good in the world. Christian activism always seeks solution-based answers to real problems for people's good. Not just Christians' good, but for people's good because of what God as creator has established. This doesn't mean we never address accusation, but in our answers, we always have concrete actions that we point to to justify as with evidence what we claim. We are people of solutions. And when attacked, we respond with the evidence of the good deeds that we have done in the world. 
You know, people who regularly accuse and claim that Christianity is useless, they're simply ignorant and foolish, just as Peter says they are. I'll give you two institutional illustrations that historically have been the most notable, not only in America, but beyond America, and it is two of the biggest today. It's health care and education. Fundamentally, these began in what we know in the modern day today by acts of Christians. They were not the amalgamations of secular ideology that said we want to do good for other people because I don't owe you anything. But it was Christians who saw the suffering and the evil in the world and said we can do something about this. Let's go do it. And they built the system that has become healthcare today. Now, we've had plenty of opportunities to do wrong in that and and, and I don't want to get into all the nuances of our problems in healthcare today, but tending to the physical needs of people is the essence. In education, Christians were catalysts in this field, even in the creation of this system and the organization of our modern education. Again, we've not completely defined it as it is today, but we were catalyst in its origin. Why? Because we held a fundamental conviction that every person ought to be able to read the word of God and his revelation for themselves. It's the heart of the revelation. Or excuse me, the reformation. It's a heart of revelation too, but specifically Revelation. We cultivate good by laboring for that which aligns with God's word and by opposing that which stands in contrast to God's word. Another example, abortion. Abortion. Listen, friends, we live in a day and time when science itself, yea, even the secular market, has given us the greatest preponderance of evidence as to why abortion is nothing more than horrific murder. I mean, maybe you remember the first image that I can recall on the public news channels that came through Oprah Winfrey herself when that fetus's hand came through that mother's womb and she was having the procedure pre-birth. And that baby stuck its hand out and said, I'm here, I'm here. And the world saw that in the greatest influence upon secular institutions, our news media. The very ones that say, no, that's not a human today. That's something pre-human, other than human. But we don't just stand and point our fingers and accuse and blame. We stand on the real solutions that we provide to the real problems that people have in this world that are not just because they're not Christians, which it is, but it's because sin is wreaking its havoc in the world and Satan is wanting to steal people to not bear the glory of God. And so we labor in institutions like Pregnancy Care Center that address the very real crisis that some people find themselves in and are surprised. We don't ask, how'd you get here? That's not the point. The point is we want to help you from where you are to where God wants to bring good to your life. Not only that, but we cultivate by uh, encouraging and by supporting and enabling and empowering and helping move the ball along with foster care and with adoption because orphans and the ministry to orphans is true religion, James says. 
as well, remembering the poor, Galatians commends us. Do not forget the poor in the preaching of the gospel. Listen, friends, in our work, we not only call out that the poor and the impoverished, we identify and we embrace with them, but we don't just throw acts of pity at them. We don't want to just see the poor have a meal to eat at the end of the day. We want to see their life flourish because of the gospel. We believe that part of God covering the face of the earth as He, uh, 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 with his glory as the waters cover the sea is about helping people better themselves from the very place that they find themselves to the place that God has for them so that the good that comes from their life can bring glory to his name as creator. And redemptively as Lord. We've got a lot of work to do. And some of it is helping them in that point of need. But it's never only that. We want to labor to advance the good of that individual. For the glory of God in their life. Christians cultivate good with real solutions that address problems with answers. That advance good for society in the world. One of the greatest actions a Christian can do for good. And I'm going to dial it into a very specific application. In the U.S. form of government, one of the greatest goods we can do regularly is our commitment to vote. I know you were wondering, is he going to tell us how to vote? Yes, I am. It wouldn't be fun if it wasn't a little controversial, would it? (laughs) Friends, voting is the most practical, regular action for good that a citizen can perform. And contrary to some claims, it's still important and it still matters. Why? Because the right no one exercises is the one no one's interested in defending. That's why. You have more than just responsibility. You have an obligation and a duty as an American citizen to vote. And you ought to feel the conviction for that even more deeply because we are Christians. We've been granted a right few in many other parts of the world do not have or cannot depend on. There is a great debate today over how to vote, though. Let me just succinctly say this. Our first priority in voting is this. A candidate who will promote good according to God's word. In how the government exercises its authority and how citizens are empowered to exercise their rights and to bear their responsibility. We must hold these foundational biblical convictions of the origin of government's authority and how they are intended by God to exercise the holding of their authority and how citizens are given the inalienable rights and the responsibility to behold those and exercise those rights. And we should look for candidates who support policy that will align with our biblical convictions. That is not easy today. But voting is the first critical act for the Christian to exercise our voice for the public conscience. It's only one way, but it is a critical way. We do not address problems by diverting attention or creating pseudo-solution. You see, government policy that offers solutions to problem by reducing individual rights or responsibility is always wrong and it creates bigger problems. You say, we have a large homeless population. Well, maybe we should start a government program that just takes meals to them every night, leaves the food, and walks away. That's a horrendous idea. Horrendous. Take a meal and offer a class to educate them and help them better themselves. Why? Because they have a right and a responsibility for that. And that's the kind of thing we should oppose and labor for. 
Policy must aim to remove barriers and hindrances that enable people to bear responsibility while exercising their rights to cultivate good. And let me say this. This may be the second most controversial thing I say in this whole series. In determining how to vote, policy should always be higher than persona as a priority. Because the office will always outlast the person who holds it. I'm going to give you one illustration of this. John DeBerry is an African-American pastor and longtime Tennessee representative from Memphis. He's been a Democrat all his life. He is a man who personally integrated into an all-white high school in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know if you know Memphis's history, but it is littered with racial violence, tension, and the lot. He integrated. He also, in 1968, heard Martin Luther King Jr.'s infamous good speech before his assassination. And in the last few weeks, he's recently been voted out of the Democratic Party for the positions that he holds. They don't want him anymore. This was not his own doing. As a matter of fact, he's opposed it. But they've said, you got to get out. He answers this question in a sermon. How do you know who to vote for? Here's what he stated. And if you go and get the manuscript of my sermon, there is a link. You can go watch this on YouTube for yourself. You find the person who has not openly declared war against God. That's what you do. You find the person who has not openly declared that they're going to remove the Bible from the marketplace. You find the person who has not openly declared that they're going to support late-term abortion. You find the person who has not openly declared that they're going to support the progressive agenda. You find the person who has not openly declared that they're going to work to destroy the biblical standard of ethics and morality. You find the person who has not openly declared that they're going to bring marriage equality, which means homosexual marriage. And you find that person, and you may have to hold your nose to push the button, but you know what the alternative is. And when we think about this in the political realm, that's exactly what we have to do. The one that has declared war on God, you do not vote for him. I don't agree with every point in the way that he nuanced it. That's not my point. But I agree with the sentiment, and I think it's wise counsel for us. I love the way Tony Evans, pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Church in South Dallas, says it. We are not Republican. We are not Democrat, we are not Libertarian, and we won't be any other party that puts another label on us. We are kingdom voters. Our first priority as Christians is the truth of the Word of God as revealed in the Bible. Christians as citizens cultivate good by actions to silence foolish and ignorant accusation. And it may take eternity to reveal the foolishness and the ignorance of those accusations. But we endure and persevere to the end. Principle number four, Christians as citizens champion freedom to honor God. Verses 16 and 17, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter reminds us that freedom is, is not defined by what earthly authorities do or say. Rather, freedom is secured by Jesus Christ. No matter where we live, in Jesus we are free. 
His freedom empowers us to rightly relate to others. And he says we in so doing should honor all people. Friends, there isn't anybody on the face of this earth. No matter what the delineation or label they wear on this earth. That we as Christians do not honor. I don't care about race, about origin, about ethnicity. I don't care about sexual preference. I don't care about how deeply in wickedness they may be involved. I don't care about how morally good they may or may not be outwardly, inwardly, or otherwise. We honor all people because people are created in the image of God. And it is God's image that we honor when we honor all people. And we labor for the good that God created them for to bring Him glory on this earth. And there we must stand. We love one another in the church. Love the brotherhood, it says. You need to understand where your first priorities have to be. And I think this has been a season that's helped us to see. At least refined them and reminded us of them. We need to give the highest glory to God. Fear God, it says. Don't worry about honoring Caesar. He's accountable to God. You can do that. Christian citizens use freedom to serve God as we respect authority and act responsibly. You see, tension with government and politics is inevitable for the Christian because we live in a world that's not our home. One theologian says it this way, all political engagement is always done uneasily. But that we are sojourners is not the primary reason there are tension. The Bible recognizes tension between Christ followers and government. And it arises because man-made structures strive to take on more than they are ordained to do or dismissed what's been given to them to do and to have by the one who endows them with their very power, creator God. This is inherent of sin, not only that is individual, but finds its way into the man-made structures and systems of this world. And without recognition of God in the public square, the entirety of the American government can be and will be, yea, even to some extent you could argue, is being dismantled. Speaking of governmental regulation and freedom, Wayne Grudem states this, every incremental increase in governmental regulation of life is also an incremental removal of some measure of human liberty. Christians champion freedom. Live As free people. So that you can use your freedom to serve for good. Again, I refer back to what Paul did when he got out of prison. We champion the highest good for people on earth. As determined by God's word. That points them to our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. You know, almost any political conversation today is accompanied by heated tension. By marked accusation. We've developed this thing called shaming and virtue signaling and likely an accusation of some kind of false God worship. Christians, I want to clarify and cut through all of that and what I'm trying to say to you in this way. Your best patriotic voice is your prophetic voice. These testimonies that decry of the goodness of God as creator and the lordship of Jesus Christ in redemption. Don't forget that. Because when Christians go silent... It creates a void and a vacuum in the world. The conscience that God put in every person at creation is longing for a testimony that tells the truth and that speaks of good. And it is the Christian's prophetic voice that declares the good of God from creation. 
that points them to the lordship of Jesus Christ in redemption. Christians are called to live as good citizens, prioritizing our identity in Jesus Christ and bearing a faithful witness in the world. Let's pray.